Thanks very much, Sangavani. Uh, I'm very pleased to uh, be here to celebrate uh, Padma Sambhava Day here in, in Colchester. Um, I'm actually going to be involved in three different Padma Sambhava Days this year, which is great. Next week at the LBC and um, a bit after that in Sheffield. So this is the first of, of three, which I'm very pleased about. Uh, but there's a question immediately. Um, why? Why do we celebrate Padmasambhava? He must be a very important and significant figure indeed if we devote uh, festivals to him, if he's one of our main uh, festival days in our movement. Uh, so that means we need to ask, well, who is Padmasambhava and in what way is he connected to us? So we, we have to say immediately, from a strict Western scientific academic, historical point of view, we know next to nothing about Padmasambhava. <laughs> there does seem to have been an Indian teacher who lived in the 8th century and who played an important part in the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet in the 8th century. But from a strict historical point of view, that's about all we know. Which seems incredible, really, doesn't it? So sometime at the beginning of the 11th century and, and the centuries that followed that in Tibet, an incredibly rich mythology emerged about Padmasambhava. Uh, extraordinary um, literary material began to appear, found as treasure texts, hidden away apparently by Padmasambhava in the 8th century. Um, whole life stories of Padmasamava, rich and vivid and extraordinary. Some of these have actually been translated into English. Describing an extraordinary figure, a transcendent figure, who interacts with the whole flow of Buddhist history, and especially with the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. And you know, not, not, not just with the introduction of Buddhism to Tibet, well, actually, um, because, because what emerges in the 11th century and, and later on, it still goes on to this day, is an intense devotional movement centering on Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava becomes the centre of meditations, uh, of visions, of rituals, uh, and in fact is associated with a continuous flow of inspiration and blessing and teaching and instruction that goes on, that continues. So it's quite clear that when you look at all this, Padmasambhava is much more than a historical figure. Padmasambhava is in fact an archetype, an image, a symbol of enlightenment itself. Uh, and Padmasambhava's mythology, and I'm not using the word mythology in any pejorative sense, Padmasambhava's mythology points to, evokes, the mysteries of enlightenment itself, communicates aspects, dimensions of enlightenment uh, that are relevant for all times and all places. So we're not dealing, when we deal with Padmasambhava, with some exotic, colourful Tibetan form. If we're just relating to Padmasambhava in that way, we're actually guilty of escapism and a kind of Orientalism, if you like. Padmasambhava communicates to us now as men and women of this time and place, as individual Buddhist practitioners now. 
In fact, in one of Padmasambhava's life stories, we actually find Padmasambhava saying to his Tibetan disciples as he's leaving Tibet, he, he didn't die, Padmasambhava, by the way, just to give you a, a bit of a sense of him, he just got on a winged horse that flew to the southwest, to the Fire Island, to the land of the Rakshasas, where he continues to convert the flesh-eating ogres somewhere in the southwest. Some people even believe that might be the kind of modern uh, Western world that we're in. Padmasambhava is somewhere <coughs> here converting the flesh-eaters. Thank goodness we've got him, because they are threatening to take over. But anyway, <laughs> in this saying he said to his Tibetan disciples as he left them, the guru of times past will not be the guru of future men. The guru of times past will not be the guru of future men. Very interesting. His form will change in accordance with, and his teaching will change in accordance with the conditions in which uh, we find ourselves. So it makes it very clear that Padmasambhava will change and transform according to the needs of people at the time. And that means that we'll need to find and re-find Padmasambhava wherever we are, wherever we happen to be, whatever's going on for us at any given time. So for the rest of this talk, I want to dip into the ocean of Padmasambhava and extract just a few tiny drops uh, with the hope that these drops can be used by you in your Buddhist practice now. But before that, I want to say something about the main way uh, by which uh, Padmasambhava is addressed, is referred to by Tibetan Buddhists. That is Guru Rinpoche. Guru Rinpoche. Rinpoche meaning something like greatly precious, indicating something of very great value, like a greatly precious jewel, an invaluable jewel. It's a term of very great respect, Rinpoche. And guru, of course, means teacher. Uh, literally, guru comes from a, a root meaning weighty or heavy. Weighty or heavy with qualities, with spiritual qualities. Um, someone is a guru, a teacher, uh, when they're weighty with such qualities. So guru Rinpoche means the greatly precious guru, the greatly precious teacher, weighty with spiritual qualities. So Padmasambhava then is the archetypal spiritual teacher. He embodies, he symbolises the guru, the teacher aspect of enlightenment. He draws out, as it were, that aspect, that dimension of Buddhahood. But what is the guru? What is the teacher? Uh, what is that teacher aspect of enlightenment? That's not as obvious as it might seem. Uh, we know that it's very important in Buddhist tradition to have a teacher, a guru. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to have a teacher? What is it, how can we, and where can we find this teacher? And it's interesting, in our own Tri Ratna uh, Buddhist tradition, Sangharakshita has, in a way, de-emphasized the whole language of the guru. He, you know, he even acknowledges that the term guru is really very debased uh, in our culture. It gets associated with all sorts of rather negative things. Um, it's even sort of lampooned in some way. There's even negative associations. So instead, Sangharachita has encouraged us to think in terms of, much more in terms of developing spiritual friendship. 
of coming into warm and friendly communication with others, with others in the Sangha. This is incredibly important, you know, incredibly important, coming into close, warm communication with others in the Sangha. We really grow and develop when we have that uh, quality of spiritual friendship. Developing close friendships, spiritual friendships with one another, other people who are practising. Some of these friendships will be with people on a similar level of experience to ourselves. Um, some of them will be with those more experienced than ourselves, some with those who are less experienced than ourselves. Um, but you're not really thinking in those terms, you're just thinking in terms of developing warm and close spiritual friendship. That's the important thing, developing friendliness, metta, to, to one another. But within spiritual friendship, a crucial aspect of spiritual friendship is teaching, instruction. Um, you know, the, there's even within spiritual fr friendship a connection with something higher and greater. Something higher and greater will emerge within Kalyanamitra, within spiritual friendship. The teacher and the guru is present. Within spiritual friendship, you find all sorts of teachings and instructions, uh, teachings and instructions that we really need. So I want to look at five different aspects of the teacher, of the guru. And, and throughout this, I'm going to refer to incidents in the life of Padmasambhava to help us appreciate this. So the five aspects are the teacher who inspires, secondly, the teacher who trains, thirdly, the teacher who purifies, fourthly, the teacher who transforms, and finally, the teacher who blesses. So first of all, the teacher who inspires. We could also call this the teacher who gives direct vision, who gives us a clear, unmediated, direct vision of enlightenment, of reality itself, of the Buddha himself. The teacher whose very presence sparks something off in us. The teacher who communicates the mystery, the energy, the beauty of enlightenment. The teacher who gives us a vision of what is actually possible, clearly and directly. He, he might use words, they might use words, they might use gestures, it might happen in silence, but something comes through. You see, you feel, you sense, you have a sort of tangible and vivid sense of enlightenment. Even of yourself as enlightened, you have a sense of you at the end of the path. You spiritually reborn, you, if you like, as lotus born, as Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava means the lotus born. The lotus-born, someone who is lotus-born, means that they're enlightened, means that they've been spiritually reborn. So the life of Padmasambhava actually begins like this. Um, you might have thought that the end of Padmasambhava's life, going off to the land of the Rakshasas, where he's still teaching, is weird. Well, his birth is pretty weird as well, because he's not born of a man and woman's congress. Uh, he's always, in, his, uh, in the life story, he's always going on, I'm not like anybody else. I was not born from a, warm, a womb. So the story goes, and there's different versions of the story, that the country of Udiana, this is somewhere in northwest India, uh, Urgyen, 
as it's known as in Tibetan. Uh, Udiyana, Urgyen, was in a terrible state. There was drought and then there was famine. Not only that, the king of Udiyana, Indrabhuti, was blind and he had no son, which means, of course, he had no heir. So the image of spiritual drought is an image of, of drought, rather. It's an image of, well, yes, of spiritual drought, of spiritual poverty, and, of, and the blindness and barrenness, if you like, is a kind of image of impotence, a lack of creativity, of real energy and power in life. And perhaps we felt like that at times. We feel sort of blind and lost and empty. Not only that, we feel we're in a kind of empty world in which there are no values. We're in a sort of wasteland. We sense that there's more, but we feel kind of blind and dry and powerless to do anything with it. We can feel as if we're in that uh, place of famine. We can feel that we're in the land of Urgen, of Udiana, like a blind king. We feel our powers, but we can't really activate them. And it's said that, going back to the story of Padmasambhava, that Avalokiteshvara, that's the bodhisattva, the archetype of enlightened compassion, saw this terrible situation in this land. And he entreated his teacher, who is the great red Buddha Amitabha, the infinite light, to do something. So Amitabha sent from his heart a crimson ray into a great lake in the land of Udiyana, the Dhanakosha Lake, out of which immediately bloomed a magnificent, fully opened red lotus flower. And then from his mouth, he sent a golden vadra into the calyx of that lotus flower. And then, miraculously, from that vadra, an eight-year-old child fully formed, miraculously appeared. The colour, the text says rather beautifully, the colour of the purple of seashells. Padmasambhava. This is how he was born. And of course he was found, this miraculous apparition, by the king and the king's ministers. And of course he was adopted as the heir to the country. And when they found him, he was sitting there on his lotus very sort of playfully, but slightly sort of quizzically as well. And he was asked who his parents were and where he'd come from. It would be a natural thing to ask if you found an eight-year-old child sitting on a lotus in a lake. They also wanted to know what his caste was, this being ancient India. Caste is a very big deal. So this is Padmasambhava's reply. So imagine an eight-year-old boy child speaking. My father is the wisdom of spontaneous awareness. My mother is the joy of the space of all things. I have no country, having been born in the realm of reality, which has no caste. I nourish myself through eating the notion of duality, and I am here to destroy the suffering of all beings." Imagine if, if any of you have got an eight-year-old son or daughter said something like that. Well, I think you'd probably bow down and hand over the um, running of the family. 
But the image of a beautiful child miraculously sprung from a lotus speaking wisdom is an image of enlightenment, actually. It's an image of Buddhahood. There's a dimension of enlightenment uh, where there is just utter purity and freshness and spontaneity and wisdom and compassion and utterly direct and uncontrived. That's what the enlightened state is and that's what this image of the eight-year-old child of Padmasambhava is communicating, those qualities of enlightenment. We need such a vision. We need to be directly in touch with such a vision and we need to live from that vision because that's where our motivation for following the path comes from. That's where our energy for following the path comes from. So many people, so many people lose their way when they take up the spiritual life. They take it up for a while and they lose their way in part because they forget their vision. They've seen something, something has opened up. Okay, it might not be in the form that I've I've tried to evoke there, the way Padmasambhava is communicating it. But so many people, you know, open up. Something opens up in their life. But they allow it to be covered over. Covered over by all sorts of other things. So we need to constantly recall such moments of vision in our lives. Not as a sort of form of attachment. You know, I'm the special person who's had a vision. Listen to my vision. Uh, but more so that we can inspire ourselves in our actual practice now. Those moments are, of vision are our teachers because they're showing us directly what we can become. Sometimes those moments of vision have come to us through an encounter with someone. I certainly feel this with my own teacher, with Ergin Sangharakshita. There's been certain times, certain moments especially, where the goal of the spiritual life has just been opened up uh, through my communication with him. Not through the words. Sometimes the words have pointed to things, but just the encounter, if you like, with his being. He's just being himself. But something has opened up uh, very, very directly. However it comes to you, find and keep finding that direct vision of the Dharma. The vision, if you like, of the lotus-born, of you reborn. Sangharakshita actually himself is someone who's never forgotten his vision. You know, when he woke up to the Dharma at the age of 16 through reading the Diamond Sutra and the Sutra of Wienang, he said he's never been in, out of touch with that vision of the Dharma. And he even has his own vision of Padmasambhava. Uh, sometime in the 1950s when he was living in Kalimpong, he visited uh, a, a town named Goom near Darjeeling. And he just wandered into a temple. And in that temple there was an absolutely massive Padmasambhava filling the temple, flanked by his main disciples, Yeshit Sogyal and Mandarava. And he describes this, seeing this image in his memoirs, and he des described it very beautifully, how strange it was and how mysterious and how deeply fascinating and attractive. And yet, he said, it was deeply familiar. As if Padmasamava actually had always been a part of him. There was a direct recognition that this wasn't a new 
uh, thing that he was encountering, and even though, it, in a sense, it was, that actually that image had always been there. And, you know, that led him to take, eventually, initiation into Padmasambhava, and it became one of his main spiritual practices. And when he took that uh, practice from his teacher, Karchi Rinpoche, he also received a new name, Urgyen Sangharakshita, Urgyen being Padmasambhava's, the land where he's born, as if to say, well, you are Sangharakshita from the country of Urgyen now, from Padmasambhava's land. So we need always to be in touch with our vision, our vision of what is possible. There's a traditional prayer to the teacher, um, which you often say at the end of meditations on Padmasambhava, where you, you say, O oh, my own immediate precious teacher, abiding within the lotus, uh, lotus of my heart, may you never separate from me, but on the contrary remain inseparable. So may we be never separated from the vision, the vision of what is possible, that teacher. So wonderful though the vision is, visions of the lotus born and so on, it's not enough. To live from vision and to live for vision, we'll have to change. And we change through practice. And one of the reasons why people lose connection with vision is because they don't change. They don't cooperate with that awareness that's alive with them. They kind of block it up, block it out. We have to change and we change through practice. We change through training. It's in a way easy to have a vision of what's possible. Um, it's actually quite easy. It's much harder to follow it through. So we need a clear training. We need a teacher who trains us. So that's the second aspect of the teacher I want to talk about. The teacher who trains. The word for training in Sanskrit is shiksha. As in, when we chant the precept, sikha, that's the Pali form, sikapadam. So shiksha comes from a root meaning to be able, to be capable. So in to, enter, to enter into the training for enlightenment, we need to be capable of doing it. Uh, sometimes people can get into moods in which they don't feel able or capable of training or practicing. Sometimes people get into moods in which they feel that somehow they've, you know, they, are, you know, they, they, they either feel... Um, I'm not good enough. You know, I can't do it. You know, I'm, you know, I'm the sort of unique person in this life, you know, who can't gain enlightenment. Hmm. Uh, sometimes people get into moods in which they feel that somehow they've got nothing to learn. There's no need to train. There's no need to practice that somehow they're already there. Weird. So both of these moods are, of course, expressions of conceit of a fixed view of ourselves. You know, if we feel that we're sort of uniquely bad and incapable of following the path, well, that's just conceit, that's just pride, that's just thinking that you're special. In the same way, thinking that you don't need to train, obviously you think you're very special. The teacher, the guru, will always cut through such conceit. He will cut through any notions that fix us that uh, separate ourselves from other people, views that make us feel special, special. The teacher, the guru, is not interested in our gains. He will, if necessary, be the Vajra guru, 
the adamantine guru, the diamond guru, the, the thunderbolt guru, which Sangharachita has described as the no-nonsense guru, the guru whose only interest is waking us up to our actual reality. And the actual reality is that we need to train, that we need to practice. There's all different ways in which the teacher will sort of, you know, not play our games. I remember there was a period in my life when uh, I was quite, I was, I was quite young, um, but I wanted a lot of attention from Sangharachita and so would sort of hang around, you know, wanting teachings and all the rest of it. Well, well Sangharachita did a kind of Teflon. Uh, mudra on me, a kind of non-stick mudra. He basically ignored me for a number of years uh, or whenever I was in that sort of mood. Um, and it was really good. It was, it was very, very powerful sort of teaching. Just cutting through the, the sort of games I was playing of being the special disciple and all that. And there are many accounts of Padmasambhava laying out the training uh, to, disciple, to his disciples some of these uh, teachings of, of, of the training involved are very detailed, very complex, because Padmasambhava was, of course, trained in all aspects of the Buddhist tradition. However, when you look at them, they're based, all of the teachings, all of the trainings in Buddhist tradition are based on the clear, direct and simple teaching of the Buddha that describes a progressive path of ethics, practicing the precepts, skillful behaviour, meditation, you know, concentrating the mind, calming the mind, uh, developing the mind through loving kindness and so on, and wisdom. Uh, wisdom especially in the sense of studying the Dharma, reflecting on the Dharma, and turning that ref reflection into a living experience. These three trainings of ethics, meditation and wisdom lead to liberation. And we just need to apply ourselves to these, this progressive training. To the five or the ten precepts, to mindfulness of breathing and metabhavna, to study and reflection. We just need to regularly and persistently train in these three areas. Uh, just getting on with that, uh, with that without distractions. But even then, we'll need to listen to the teacher to help us to apply the training to our particular circumstances and conditions. Uh, the great Indian teacher, Atisha, uh, who was uh, instrumental in, in a kind of revival of Tibetan Buddhism in the 10th century, uh, has a famous saying which goes, the precept of the teacher is more important than the scriptures and their commentaries. The precept of the teacher is more important than studying the scriptures and the commentaries. So the precept of the teacher is the direct, pithy teaching from the heart to our heart that cuts through confusion and shows us clearly and directly how to practice right now, how to apply the trainings in meditation, in ethics, meditation and wisdom to our circumstances right now. Because we know that sometimes... Our circumstances can be very complicated. Well, we make it all complicated as well, don't we? So this is where we need spiritual friends and a communication with spiritual friends who know us to show us very, very clearly how to apply the teachings right now. We need that precept. And sometimes you can, when you, when you read the different records of Padmasambhava's life, you can, 
You can see his precepts uh, to his to his own disciples, to, especially to his disciple Yeshit Sogyal, his great uh, Tibetan woman disciple. I'll just just give you a quality of of of, of, of you know what it would be like to be end on the end of a precept from Padmasambhava from Guru Rinpoche. Sogyal, enough with your past struggling with pointless activities. Now accomplish the important task. Enough with tiresome and hopeless slaving for others' worldly aims. Now accomplish the necessary benefit for yourself. Enough with your wasted words and deeds. Now steer your voice and body to the Dharma. Enough with your indifferent complacency. Now bring forth joyful diligence in practice. Enough with your submitting to relatives. Break down the wall of fear. Enough with hatred to enemies. Now train in love and compassion. Enough with your misery in samsaric existence. Now escape to the realm of great bliss. Enough with being part of a group. Now live as an individual in solitude. Enough with your unwholesome words. Now be silent and keep company with the truth. Enough with your deluded thinking and planning. Now recognise Dharmakaya. Now is the time for unifying faith and effort to accomplish enlightenment. Fantastic. Now... To be able to hear such a te- teaching and to hear the voice of the teacher, for that to be a real living precept for us, we need to be very alert, very alive and awake to what is happening. It's said of Yeshe Tsogyal, uh, this great disciple of Padmasambhava, through the intensity of her spiritual practice, she awoke to the fact that the whole of existence was her teacher. It's as if teaching is always there. You know, if you've really made the Dharma a living experience, the teacher and the teaching is always there. It's said in the, in the Buddhist uh, Pure Lands that uh, um, these, these environments where everything is conducive to spiritual practice, all the birds are singing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness insubstantiality you hear it in the bird song all around you so often we just don't really appreciate the dharma that is available to us the dharma that people are actually showing to us so we don't hear it we don't practice it we don't train in it we don't see the teacher at all even when they're staring us right in the face we're too full of ourselves too bound up with worldly aims and concerns. In a sense, we haven't really decided to follow the path. We're not really committed to the path, even though we think we are. Buddhism is still a kind of add-on, a kind of luxury item, not what it should be, which is life itself, as vital to us as our breath, as our heartbeat, as our eyes. To really find the teacher and to see and hear the teacher we'll need to divest ourselves of all that's in the way. 
within us will need to purify ourselves. So I want to talk now about the teacher who purifies. So in the life story of Padmasambhava, we find a long period of intense purification. You might not think he needed to, being born of a lotus, but don't worry about that. Um, it's just, uh, just it's one of the mysteries of enlightenment. Um, the story goes that having been found and adopted by the king of Uddiyana, Padmasambhava was groomed to be the next king. He was known as, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Padmagyalpo, Lotus King. Uh, but as you can imagine from one born from a lotus, Padmasambhava felt very confined in the palace and restless. And he longed to get away. It's as if Padmasambhava is like a sort of foundling, a kind of fairy child, if you like, restless to return to their natural abode. But it was very difficult to get away. It's a bit like uh, the story of the life of the Buddha in this sense. Very difficult to get away because his father was so fond of him. He was always sort of, you know, almost sealing him up in the palace. But when he got to his youth, as youth sometimes do, Padmasambhava began to seriously misbehave. You know, imagine having a kind of enlightened adolescent on your hands. Um, he, ban he began to go about virtually naked, <laughs> apart from wearing bone ornaments and animal skins. And he began to kind of dance ecstatically, spontaneously on the roof of the, pra of the palace, you know, with a trident. That's a trident. And yes, bone ornaments. And his hair loose. And his um, eyes wild. It was really seriously weird activity, mad activity. Uh, very spontaneous and strange, really shocking the court. You have to appreciate the symbolism here because bones, animal skins, nudity are going right against rigid, Brahminical caste attitudes in ancient India. All this is seen as, you know, it's, it's almost Victorian kind of the attitudes that, that, of, uh, you know, to these things in, in, in Indian tradition. Eventually, his behaviour was so very bad, I won't go into the details, and the king, on the pressure on the king was so great, Padmasambhava was exiled to the great cremation ground called Chili Grove. Chili Grove. Where he stayed for some time. In fact, for many years, Padmasambhava went from one great cremation ground to another. In fact, to the eight great cremation grounds of ancient India. And these cremation grounds were very lonely places where the dead were brought, left to rot, or picked apart by vultures and jackals, or bought, burned in great pyres. And judging by Buddhist literature, especially tantric literature, the cremation ground is an extraordinarily important place of spiritual practice in, in ancient India. Not just a place of spiritual practice, but a place of spiritual experience, a place of initiation, and a place especially where you find the teacher and you find the teaching. There's so much one could say about uh, the cremation ground. Sangracht has given a whole lecture on, on the cremation ground, uh, well worth listening to. 
haven't got uh, time to go into all that, so just a few thoughts. First of all, the cremation ground is a place of purification. What it purifies uh, us of is all worldly concerns and ambitions. As I've said, you have to remember that in traditional Indian society, Brahminical society, anything to do with the dead is impure. Uh, to go to the cremation ground then means that you become outcast, polluted, untouchable. You are definitely not respectable. You're living there with nothing, with your unkempt um, you know, hair, you could probably, you know, Padmasamba would probably have dreads, you know, dr you know, just let it grow like that. Wearing barely any clothes, uh, just meditating. You're no longer part of respectable society. You're purifying yourself then if you go to the cremation ground of all worldly position, ambition and comfort. You're relying entirely on the Dharma, on the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. That's the only thing that matters to you. Uh, on our own level, we might uh, have a small experience of this. Um, when we find that people, even family and close friends, can be shocked, disturbed and disapproving when we decide to train in the Dharma. You know, people, might, you know, people do find this sometimes, that they're regarded as being sort of weird and selfish and mad. You know, because they've taken up their Buddhist practice, either by their family members or their friends. I remember one, one woman saying to me that when she came to a... I, I'd ordained their, their, um, their husband, and um, his wife came to me and, you know, she'd said, you know, it's very, very good to be here. It was very, very difficult when he first got into Buddhism. It was worse than him having another woman, <laughs> which I found quite shocking. Um, you know, and it was very, I know it was very, very difficult for them because she really sort of disapproved of what he was getting into. Anyway, they worked it all out, thankfully. And we can feel sometimes in, in, when we're in this position, if we're following the Dharma and we're getting a lot of disapproval from, you know, family, friends, work colleagues or whatever, we can feel that there's something wrong and we want to pull back. But no, this is a good sign, actually. Um, we're changing. We're not fitting in. This can be very uncomfortable, of course. Very uncomfortable for us if we feel that our Dharma practice means that we're not fitting in. But it's a great test of how truly individual we are and how deep our commitment to the Dharma goes. We're purifying ourselves through experience like this of wanting to be liked, of approved of and so on, rather than acting from real values. I said that in traditional Indian society, the cremation ground is an impure place, or traditionally regarded as that, a bad place. It's also a frightening place for, for, for those in conventional society. It's a place, traditionally, full of ghosts and ghouls and demons and demonesses. After all, it's the place of the dead. It represents the cremation ground, if you like, everything that we don't want to look at. But for Padmasambhava, the cremation ground is a paradise. It's a wonderful place, a magical place. It's said that in these cremation grounds, Padmasambhava would sit, relaxed, leaning against a stupa, which is, of course, 
an architectural symbol of the Dharma. Padmasambhava's skin would go a brilliant red. His eyes would light up. He would smile ecstatically. And he would sit there teaching the Dharma to the Dharkanese. And the Dharkanese here are not Dharkanese in the sense of symbols of the wisdom of enlightenment. The Dharkanese in this context are the flesh-eating, monstrous, horrific demonesses of the cremation ground. But you must make sure you don't get your Dharkanese confused. Is it a wisdom darkening that you're encountering or one of these ogresses? Anyway, these are the darkenies. I'm going to read you a description of the darkenies of Chili Grove. And Padmasambhava is sitting there teaching them ecstatically. They're kind of in front of him. The teaching isn't through words. He's just sort of looking at them, delighting in them. There are to be seen countless darkenies. Some of them have eyes that dart out sun rays. Others give rise to thunderclaps and ride water buffaloes. Others hold sabres and have eyes which inflict harm. Others wear death's heads one above the other and ride tigers. Others wear corpses and ride lions. Others eat entrails and ride garudas. Others have flaming lances and ride jackals. Others, five-faced, are steeped in a lake of blood. Others, in their numberless hands, carry many generations of living beings. Others carry in their own heads, in their own hands, others carry in their own hands, their own heads, which they've severed. Imagine them sort of dancing, can't you? Others carry in their hands their own hearts, which they've torn out. There are others who have made gaping wounds in their own bodies and who empty out and devour their own intestines and entrails. There are others who hide and yet reveal their male or female sexual organs, riding horses, bulls, elephants. Now, Padmasambhava doesn't see all this activity as monstrous, What he sees is the nature of existence itself. It's constant change and transformation. So to really dwell in the cremation ground means to live in full awareness of this world of transformations. And when that happens, when you see everything as always being dying and being reborn and constantly changing, when that happens, you find the darkeny as the teacher the darkeny as the embodiment of the wisdom of all the Buddhas, becomes your teacher. In one of the great cremation grounds, Padmasambhava finds his way to an amazing palace called the Castle of the Skull. And in this great castle, there resided a great teacher seated on a throne with cushions of the sun and the moon, the great red darkeny Surya Chandrasiddhi, which means something like the accomplishment of the sun and the moon, which you could render as the accomplishment of wisdom and compassion. So this is the darkeny who embodies the wisdom and compassion of all the Buddhas. 
And to get to this teacher, Padmasambhava had to do quite a lot. He had to go through all sorts of tests and had to perform various magical feats to get into her presence. And when he came to her, he asked for her initiation. He asked for a teaching. And the darkani saw that indeed Padmasambhava was ready. And immediately she transformed him into the, the mantric seed syllable hum. So imagine that. You go and ask for a teaching and you suddenly get transformed into a letter. Which she then swallowed. She swallows the hum. And it goes and the hum, Padmasambhava, is sort of, well, goes through her. Goes through all her psychic centres, going through many transformations before emerging utterly transformed, transfigured, spiritually reborn. So this kind of incident in the cremation ground points to the fact that the Dharma life, our Dharma life, will involve a complete and total transformation. In our own path of spiritual practice, Sangharachita talks about first the stage of integration, then the stage of positive emotion. Then, he says, there needs to be spiritual death and then spiritual rebirth. We tend to think of the spiritual life in terms of going along, gradually improving, getting a bit better, eventually sort of getting somewhere, kind of comfortable. But if, we really, if we're really serious, we have to recognise that the Dharma life will take everything. Absolutely everything. If we want enlightenment, if we want insight, everything will be given up. It is indeed like dying and being reborn. It is indeed like being eaten, consumed, taken over, and will be reborn into something rich and strange, but which, paradoxically, will feel more truly us. Because actually we're more real, because it is real. We'll be living in accordance with the fact that everything, all the time, is death and rebirth and death and rebirth. Everything is continuous transformation. So that brings us to the teacher who transforms. One of the most famous parts of Padmasambhava's life story, which Buddhists have very eloquently referred to, uh, is about the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. Uh, the great king, the great Dharma king, Trisong Detson, wanted to build a monastery, the great Samye monastery. He wanted to build a great centre of learning and practice, a place in which the spiritual community can gather, a place where the Sangha can gather for teachings, where everything is conducive for spiritual practice. So the builders got going, uh, laying the foundation, getting the walls up, all going fine. And when they come back the next day, it would all been taken down. You know, all, all the walls had been um, knocked down, the foundations ripped out, everything had been taken back to its place. And the king was advised the gods and spirits of Tibet are not happy with you building this monastery. And it's them who are destroying the monastery overnight. 
In other words, the deep forces of the land, of the Tibetan psyche, did not want the Dharma. So Padmasambhava was called for, called in, uh, because he'd got a reputation in India, in India for dealing with these kinds of things. No doubt all those years in the cremation grounds had helped. So Guru Padma, Padmasambhava spent a very long time coming to Tibet. They were all eager for him to come, but he spent months, maybe a year, meditating on the borders of Tibet before even going into Tibet. And in that time he had many strange encounters with many strange beings. Basically, what you get described in the text that describe this are the gods and spirits of Tibet attacking him, seeking to, hit, to destroy him. Uh, he, in a way, deliberately invokes them, evokes them. Uh, but in each case, through the power of his meditation, the power of his awareness, the power of his wisdom, the power of his love and compassion, the god or the goddess would bow to him and the texts say they gave him the heart of their lives, which is, can also be translated, they gave him their secret name. He'd wrested their name from them, so that meant he had power over them. And they vowed these different gods and spirits to serve the Dharma, to protect the Dharma, to enrich the Dharma rather than to fight the Dharma. So because of these and other stories, Sangharakshita, our own uh, teacher, sees Padmasambhava especially as the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha in that aspect of transforming the powerful forces of our unconscious so that they serve the Dharma, so that they enrich our Dharma life rather than oppose it. Again, this is a very, very big topic to talk about, and I can't say much. Let's just give an illustration, and I'm, I'm not even sure how this works. I just want to say one thing. We know how powerful desire is in us. I hope I'm not projecting that onto you. Certainly powerful in me. Desire, craving, it manifests in us in so many ways, as sexual desire, as intense love, whatever it is. It's so basic, so fundamental. We're not just talking when we talk about desire just for some sort of sense experience, you know, cream cakes, Mars bars, whatever it is, a kiss. We're talking about the, the actual force that makes us want to live. That's what... All our different desires are really manifestations of a sort of desire to be. It drives us along. This is what drives the wheel of life. Well, imagine that, in whatever, you know, wherever your desire manifests most strongly, imagine that intensity, imagine that deep drive being fully harnessed into the spiritual life. Imagine meditating with the intensity of sexual craving of intense love. Imagine studying the Dharma with that intensity or of working for the Dharma with that intensity. Imagine too the intensity of pleasure that would come from that quality of engagement. You know, this is just an example. The same would apply to anything in which, in which we have very strong emotions. We need to imagine how that quality of energy could be in our spiritual practice. Guru Padmasambhava symbolises the awareness. 
He symbolises the teacher. That transforms that energy. It's not easy to say how this happens. What we can see, though, that in the tradition, the great disciples of Guru Padmasambhava regard Padmasambhava as extraordinarily beautiful, handsome, beguiling, fascinating. The Indian princess Mandarava, who is one of his main disciples, faints when Padmasambhava comes to teach her. She fight, teach him, teach her. She, is, she regards him as so extraordinarily beautiful, transcendently beautiful. And when she comes to, she sings. She sings pra- uh, these praises to him. And she describes him with these words, just a few phrases, describes him as the healing power of love, the dazzling, joyful epiphany. So if we're to really progress, we'll need to find the Buddha, the teacher, the guru, who is utterly beautiful to us, who dazzles us, fascinates us, attracts us, draws forth our intense longing and loving devotion. It's why Buddhist tradition is rich with beautiful images, stories, mythology, art, poetry, music. It's so extraordinarily important. We need to develop this sense of beauty. In the end, we'll see the beautiful everywhere, in everything. In the Tibetan Nyingma tradition, the old ones, the ancient ones, who regard themselves as being founded by Padmasambhava, in their tradition, you're even instructed to imagine yourself, whether you're a man or a woman, as one of Padmasambhava's female disciples. You imagine yourself as Princess Mandarava, the beautiful Indian uh, disciple, or Yeshe Tsogyal, his beautiful Tibetan disciple. You imagine yourself like that, and you contact that intense uh, longing, uh, that intense sense of the beauty of Padmasambhava, and you open up to the intensity of Padmasambhava's gaze, his intense love for them. You're, in other words, imagining yourself into this sort of drama where you are fully and utterly engaged in the spiritual life. And when you have experiences like this, you can begin to feel what real transformation might be like. You even feel raining down the blessings of the teacher, the blessings of Padmasambhava. So finally and briefly, the teacher who blesses. Again, this is something not easy to talk about. We all know that Buddhism is profoundly non-theistic. There's no creator God, and that's very attractive and very important because it means that we have to rely on our own efforts. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. But there are times when you have a different kind of experience. You look around in wonder. Wonder. You know, where has all this come from? How is it that I found the Dharma, these teachings, this teacher, these spiritual friends, this life. You even feel that something wonderful flows directly into you, enriching you, sustaining you, almost in spite of yourself sometimes. And the followers of Guru Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, are keenly aware of his, of his blessings and this sense of blessing. 
It said that those blessings grow especially strong and bright in times of difficulty, in dark times, whether personally or collectively. The blessings, the brightness of Prabhmasambhava grow especially strong uh, when, when things are difficult and when we turn away from worldly concerns. So let's hear, to end, what Padmasambhava says about himself to his beloved disciples before leaving Tibet. Meditate on Padmasambhava, embodied in a form of light and not of flesh. And have great confidence, and I shall come, unable to resist. When with devotion and strong, fervent aspirations that you make to me, Padmasambhava, I will come to you. Again and yet again say this, in joy and sorrow, fortune and adversity, in death, in life, in this world and the next, in every circumstance, both now until enlightenment, in good or ill, you are my refuge, O Guru Padmasambhava. You who know, I trust in you. With those who have devoted hearts, I, Padmasambhava, stay. From them, I never separate. May we be never separated from the greatly precious Guru.